A decade of economic damage, ministers making their mark, New South Wales workers face down wage cuts, plus good news about seagrass. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. My name is Ben Davison and joining me from the Sunshine State, the city on the river, the home of the Palaszczuk government, the great, the glorious, best-selling author of QAnon and On, Van Badham. How are you, my darling? How is the Sunshine State? I miss you terribly. The Sunshine State is very sunshiny. I don't know what the weather's like outside because I'm in a hotel room with a glass wall, gazing over the river. It's quite beautiful. I had a pretty amazing day yesterday uh, where um, my beloved friend Terry and I uh, hired the new public transport scooters that are popping up in cities all over Australia. I've ridden them in Adelaide and they're, of course, in Ballarat. And Terry and I went for a scooter by the river in Brisbane, and I've got to say it was one of the best tourist experiences of my life. Well, that's fantastic news. Of course, Van, you've been incredibly busy. You've had uh, an article out this week in The Guardian. We'll talk a little bit about some of the key themes of that in today's uh, episode. Uh, And I think we really should just dive into it because there's been a huge amount huge amount going on and of course we are now 15 16 17 17 18 days into a labor government Uh, it feels like so much longer but so much shorter at the same time and after 18 days already the conservative commentators are blaming labor for a decade of mismanagement and economic damage done by the morrison turnbull abbott uh, Frydenberg, Dutton, take your pick, government, uh, because the Reserve Bank has lifted the target cash rate to 0.85% this week. Yes. Uh, so there is pressure on the economy uh, because inflation is beginning to bite. Various international uh, newspapers are beginning to warn of potential stagflation, which is uh, when wages aren't going up but inflation is, uh, which is was a phenomenon associated with the 1970s um, during the OPEC crisis, which had, of course, massive political ramifications throughout the world. And there is a, a lot of concern that the, the global economic moment uh, is replicating some of the conditions that happened in the 1970s. And in order to remedy this locally, uh, you know, with rise of cost of living and various other uh, effects of rising inflation on the local economy, uh, the decision has been made to raise interest rates. And, of course, this is always a very touchy subject in Australia because there is a generational memory of a period in the 1990s or late 1980s, early 1990s, when interest rates in Australia went as high as 17, 18%. A lot of families remember what that was like. Certainly I do because my parents had a mortgage at the time. But there is um, a, a lot of uh, expressed opinion, particularly online, that we are very, very, very far away from interest rate rises like that. But obviously, with a third of Australians having a mortgage, um, there are going to be impacts on the household bottom line because of the interest rate rise from the Reserve Bank. I think it's interesting, though, too, Van, the point you've just made, you know, a third of Australians have a mortgage, but two-thirds of Australians don't. No, and they don't. And we've talked about that on this show before, where that number breaks down to a third of Australians have paid off their home and a third of Australians rent or in some other form of accommodation. Uh, and then, of course, a third have a mortgage. So for those who are in retirement phase of their life, in actual fact, increases in interest rates can have a positive impact because they get higher higher returns on their savings. Of course, the way the rest of the economy is operating and the Ructions in the stock market and, and the repricing of bonds means that maybe there's a short-term hit for them too, uh, or they're just coming off a short-term hit as well. So there's a lot of cost of living discussion going on. Of course, the 400,000 people bought their first home in the last 12 months, and many did that sort of at the very maximum 
price, but also the maximum amount they could borrow. And there is some concern that for particularly those people uh, or anyone who's suddenly um, found themselves unemployed, this could be this could be an issue. But you're right, 0.85, 0.85 is a long way off the 15, 16, 17%. Uh, but it is often on much larger balances. Of course, yes. we know. I mean, the, this is the point that's been made. The at the time that uh, mortgage, like mortgage interest rates were hitting seventeen, eighteen, people were taking mortgages of around ninety thousand dollars to buy a house. And of course, today we've seen these massive explosions in the property market, um, particularly in Melbourne and Sydney. I mean, they are everywhere, but Melbourne and Sydney are beyond our wildest dreams. And the amount of money that people take out if they do max out what a a bank is willing to lend them. And it does open that can of worms about responsible lending and about what people can afford and what restrictions can and should be put on borrowing. All of these are complex and intersectional financial questions, but we are only at a 0.85% interest rate. We know that the unseasonably low interest rates we've had for a long time were not going to last forever. And let's just compare this to what's going on with our comrades in Ukraine at the moment, who, because of the extraordinary economic pressure that particular country is under, they're facing interest rate rises of between 20 and 25%. Yeah, look, it's a... As well as getting bombed by Russians and having their children abducted. Of course. course. And and, and I think... You know, it is. There are lots of elements of cost of living pressure that are that are being played out at the moment. Um, interest rates are kind of an easy shorthand for a lot of people. But you know, on this show, on the week on Wednesday, we don't like easy shorthands. We like to get in under the headline and get into the detail. Uh, and and it's important to realise that yes, those small uh, mortgages that people were taking out in the eighties and the nineties. One of the key factors there is also how much of a how much of a multiplier of a person's wage they were. So at the moment, the cost of a house is somewhere around six to seven times a person's annual wage. Back then, it was often less than two times a person's annual wage. Uh, so these are factors that play in too. But of course, Van, the RBA governor has said that households have, and I quote, built up large financial buffers. Again, this and I discussed this on Sunday's episode of the Weekend Wrap. That that's true. Australians have some of the highest rates of savings we've had in a long time. That's been coming down a little bit post pandemic, but still quite high. But again, when you get under that headline, fifty uh, percent of savings are held by the richest one percent of Australians. So there are economic equity questions about the measures that we take when we're trying to balance out the economy. And and when the RBA governor talks about, oh, well, people have a lot of savings, well, some people have a lot of savings. Yeah, some people do. And those people do better out of interest rate rises because if you have savings, and of course one of the functions of interest rate rises is to encourage people into saving, not spending, because there are rewards to saving when interest rates go up and obviously there are penalties to spending. Uh, the issue, of course, in you're right, that is an equity issue and it's one of the reasons why where you and I come from politically and ideologically is we are champions of welfare state policy. Because in economically unstable times, if your bedrocks of healthcare and aged care and disability care and education, if they are consistent and they are provided by the state, that withers you against other kinds of economic fluctuation. You know, we compare mm. this, we do a lot of comparisons on the show about our cousins in the United States where the single largest driver of bankruptcy of households in that country is healthcare costs because they don't have Medicare. They don't, or they have a very weak Medicare yeah. model that only applies to a few people. They don't have universal healthcare and households are not in a position to weather 
the economic shocks of anything going wrong. Not to mention educational opportunity is entirely determined by how much money your family already have before you enter the education system. And I, I hope that this particular period, now that we have a Labor federal government and so many Labor state governments, gets us back to talking about why the welfare state is important. Well, I think on that point, Van, it's interesting to note that the Commonwealth Treasurer Jim Chalmers has said that the government will bring in permanent cost of living relief in, in the October budget. So prior to the election, Labor committed to having another budget in October. Jim Chalmers is saying that that budget will bring in permanent cost of living relief. Uh, he's also said that they'll be tackling the issue of wages keeping pace with inflation. And of course, we saw Anthony Albanese write to the Fair Work Commission saying that the minimum wage and award wage increases shouldn't uh, see people go backwards and should keep pace with the cost of inflation. Some people have suggested that inflation being being the problem that it is, it's above the target rate. 5%, possibly going higher, that somehow or another wages are one of the driving factors. But we know in actual fact at the moment that we have declining wages in this country and other things are actually driving the rise in inflation, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, there are a number of things that are driving rising inflation. And uh, I mean, there are problems all over the world. And the important thing to remember is that a lot of these problems even predate the pandemic. You know, the way that our overstretched supply lines, the way that price gouging has been occurring because of market concentration, you know, a few suppliers who own everything are in a position to bump up the prices of the commodities that they control. Um, we've obviously seen the interruption of the pandemic, which put a lot of uh, price pressure on various commodities, like particularly lumber, with everybody stuck at home and every middle-class person who was in lockdown deciding that now is the time to begin a process of home renovation. I mean, obviously, this did put pressure on lumber prices as supply raced to meet demand, but enormous amounts of price gouging went on in those, you know, particular markets. Um, yeah. We've also seen like there have been price rises that have just been opportunistic taking place everywhere and these are having flow-on effects in the economy. Well, that's right. And we saw that some of the big drivers of inflation are the price of oil and gas, which are obviously impacted by war in Ukraine, uh, but also through government policy. And I'll talk a bit about that more in a moment but also shipping containers. There was a shortage of shipping containers during the pandemic, pallets, that construction timber, as you mentioned, fertilizer. And again, Ukraine is one of the world's largest exporters of fertilizer. Now in Australia, we don't import all of our fertilizer, which is good. Uh, and of course, microchips, microchips, which feature in everything from cars to the equipment we use to make this podcast to people's phones, TVs, everything really now has a microchip in it. Hence um, my failure to get a PlayStation 5, which I want so desperately. <laughs> and, yeah, like there are literally communities, secret communities of people trying to find PS5s. And, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, these are the things. These are the ramifications of the economic world in which we live. Well, there's some good news there in that apparently the price of microchips and the production of micro the price of microchips has gone down, the production levels are going up, the availability of shipping containers has improved, and fertilizer prices are starting to drop as well. So these are all base inputs, right? And it was interesting. Um, I don't know if you saw Dan Walton, the National Secretary of the Australian Workers Union, was on the Today Show. I think it was yesterday, talking about the gas crisis in Australia. Now, Australia is one of the world's largest exporters of gas, so this idea that there's a crisis is a bit ridiculous. And he was asked the question, you know, will we run out? And he said, well, no, we won't run out of gas because uh, we export so much of it. The problem is that uh, because we export so much of it, uh, the people who use it will simply turn it off. And we all think about gas as what we use to run our heating or our stovetops, but actually 
gas in this country is a major input into almost everything we manufacture. So whether it's glass or aluminium or steel or just about anything really, gas is used as an energy source, uh, whether it's chemical production, so many things, food production even, gas plays a major role. So when employers are ringing him saying, my gas bill is going up $100,000 sorry, $100, a day, it's not that we'll run out of gas, it's that we'll be priced out of the market for our own natural resource. Well, exactly. And I mean, this is where the criticism has been coming from. I did an ABC interview yesterday that were, where the ABC journalist was just incredulous. She was like, how is it that we are a gas supplier and yet we're being price gouged on gas costs? And of course, technology has made it possible for us to export gas. There's been a campaign in this country for years associated with the likes of Greg Combe talking about gas reserves in order to head off specifically the situation we are now in. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, the union movement in this country has been calling for gas reservation for years. I remember uh, in 2015, the Australian Council of Trade Unions uh, Congress, there was a resolution calling for a gas reservation policy. And of course, you know, we've had a decade of uh, Morrisonomics where export as much of it as you can, take as much profit as you can. Interestingly, WA does reserve gas for itself. And the price of gas in WA is $5.55. And, and, and Van, you know, when you compare that to the East Coast, where the price is $40 and in South Australia, $43. I mean, it, it talks to the success of having a gas reservation policy, doesn't it? Uh, yes, rather conclusively. If it is eight times more expensive to not have one, I think the numbers are, are pretty clear on that one, Ben, actually. And, you know, when we think about those input costs, driving inflation, you know, and we think about the the knock on effect then of, you know, ex- lettuces costing ten dollars each or seven dollars each or whatever lettuce costs. I don't I don't eat a lot of lettuce. People probably not surprised to hear that. Um, but, I try, I try, listeners, I try. <laughs> but the the argument, um, and and I want to say at this point too, a huge thank you to everybody who continues to support. The week on Wednesday financially, because we do recognize that for many people, this is a tough time financially. And there are hundreds of people who do make a contribution to our buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday uh, page. Uh, and I just want to thank everybody who does that, whether it's a once off or you're doing it monthly. We appreciate that, that, you know, uh, you're making that decision. This is this is free to listen to and free to download. So people making that contribution, it's really appreciated. But you know, we're seeing now these arguments that say, "Oh, well, we can't have wages go up because that'll make inflation worse." But the reality is that that's just not true, is it? No, that's not. The wages are not the source of the inflation in the economy at the moment. And realistically, what the Albanese government government has been talking about is a $1 an hour increase, which is $8 a day, which is $40 a week, which is actually not going to bankrupt anybody. If your business is going to go bankrupt because you're paying your staff an extra $40 a week, I don't think your business is in a really great position anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And it you know, one of the things people need to understand about the way wages can, can contribute to inflation is that they only become inflationary when the increase in wages is more than inflation plus productivity. At the moment, wages are roughly half the rate of inflation. That means there's a significant amount of headroom, lots of space for wages to go up before they have any impact on inflation whatsoever. And productivity in this country is actually at some of the highest levels it's ever been. And according to trading economics, Australia's productivity 
averages around, and they use, you know, benchmark figures and things. So it averages around 78.88 points, right? And that's over a long period. That's between 1978 and June 1, 2022. And the worst year for Australian productivity was 1979, right? And the number was 55.3. Van, can you guess when the best three-month period for Australian productivity has been in that period? Tell me, Ben, when was it? It was the last quarter. So the start of 2022, Australians were more productive than we've ever been. The number jumped to 104. And in fact, it's only dropped below a score of 100 for the six months at the very start of the pandemic. Outside of that, over the last five years, Australians have been incredibly productive. And yet during that time, wages have gone backwards. Yes. Well, this is the thing. Like productivity, there've been productivity gains year on year for the past 50 years. We are an incredibly productive society and we're a society where workforces embrace technology. You and I talk about the example of Australian nursing and that that was a, a community, heavily unionized community that negotiated how uh, how it, the workers it represented, nurses, were going to work alongside technological improvements in the workplace. Rather than have their jobs replaced by machines, how would their jobs be enhanced by machines? And, of course, we have amazing university-educated, highly professionalised nurses in this country, and productivity in the, the nursing workplace went through the roof as a result. Yeah. Imagine. And this is the thing, like a year on year, we have productivity growth, but we don't have wage growth to match productivity. This is what I wrote about in my uh, Guardian piece yesterday, that like the traditional um, argument from employers is, well, if you want a wage rise, you have to increase your productivity. We hear that. We're having that conversation broadly in Australia at the moment. And yet that productivity has already been delivered, continues to be delivered, and the wage rises have not come. That's just institutional resistance from employers. That's got nothing to do with any inevitable economic relationship. You know, and we're living in this period of time where a lot of these economic shibboleths like the Phillips curve, which I think we've talked about before, like wage productivity growth, paradigms, all of this stuff, that employers and the Tory parties that represent their interests have been insisting is economic orthodoxy for so long are just not true. They are not true. Well, this is the thing. It's entirely it's entirely a lie. Like it's demonstrably a lie. We we know that, you know, Alison Pennington has uh, been doing some work on this uh, and has been in the news. She's an economist from the Center for Future Work. Uh, you should check out her Twitter feed if you're not already following it because she breaks down the fact that actually in Australia we have some record low levels of business investment. We have some record low levels of businesses training their workforce. And it's not to say every business, right? But when you take these things in the aggregate, when you look at the macro, that's that's how you set policy. You can't go, well, well, well I know a good business who does the right thing. Well, of course, we all know that business, those people are doing the right thing. But in some ways, they're also being punished, right? So when a system is set up in order to essentially punish businesses who are doing the right thing, punish workers who are trying to do the right thing, then the people who are benefiting are those doing the wrong thing. And, and that's what's coming through in the figures. The, there are some really interesting stats here. The profit share of GDP, that is what we produce as a country that goes to profits, that is not just paying wages but going to dividends uh, and going back into companies' balance sheets, is at the highest level it's ever been. Companies overall, on aggregate, are more profitable in Australia than ever before. And the share that goes to wages, that's the what we produce as a country that goes to pay people, that people use to you know buy things, buy their homes, pay the rent, is the lowest it's ever been. You know, that's a pretty clear marker that something is quite broken in the relationship between productivity, economic growth, wages, and profits. These things are, are not 
operating in the way that Morrisonomics pretended they were operating. No, of course not. And they haven't. I mean, the, capitalism exists to accrue capital. There, there's a bit of a dead giveaway in the name. And capitalism <laughs> is not a moral force. You know, it doesn't sit there going, what's what's the good thing we can do? The only logic of capitalism is capital accumulation. Like I, I genuinely find it bizarre that people don't really look at the word and go, oh, so that's what that's about. You know, the profit motive is just about profit. It's not about you know, net outputs that benefit humanity or raise worker wages. There's no inherent morality to this ideological system that wealth will flow to the people who do the work. That's called socialism or laborist socialism specifically. If you think people who work should have a say in the conditions that govern them, they are the beliefs that you and I represent. Capitalism does not represent those interests. It represents the interests of those who have capital and would like to accumulate more of it. And mm-hmm. there is, they will not obey economic laws. We know what capitalists do. Capitalists will break any law that they have, they believe they have the opportunity to break and get away with, whether it's an economic law or in many cases, a legal one, as we have seen, you know, capitalists will lobby to have laws changed in their own interest. Like the ridiculously punitive system of industrial relations in this country that will fine you if you go on strike. Let's talk about, well, let's, let's, Let's talk about the industrial relations system, fam, because- Because we love um, talking about it, Ben. We actually and, get all warm and furry every time we talk about it. And Germanicus is clearly clearly up for that debate as well, because the point that people are making is that under this decade of Morrisonomics, and we should remember before he was Prime Minister, Morrison was Treasurer, right? So he, he's had a massive influence over the last decade and the way this country operates. But actually, under Morrisonomics, there was a real push to Uberize everybody, to Uberize everything. And, you know, you might go, oh, well, that sounds a bit far fetched, right? And surely that's not true. But when you look at the numbers, and I had to look at a whole series of different places in the ABS, and, you know, these are all, you can research this in your own time. You can find all of this data from the ABS or the Attorney General's office who captures some of the data on industrial instruments. There's been a massive shift towards Uberizing the workforce, to moving away from people being covered by collective agreements that are negotiated collectively through their union with their employer to increase wages and improve conditions. Massive shift away from that. So when Labor was last in office, 41.3% of Australians were covered by a collective agreement. When Labor came back into office, so with the last day of Morrisonomics, only 35% of Australians were covered by a collective agreement. That's a huge, huge drop when you think about how many millions of people that is. You know, the, the number of people who rely on the basic minimum award has gone from around one in five Australians to now nearly one in four. You know, the, the owners of incorporated businesses, these are not sole traders, these are people who have incorporated a business, have gone from 3.4% to 4.1%. Again, you know, basically lifted by a third, increased by a third. Now you go, well, that, that seems okay. Well, that's a bit strange. Maybe there's a, you know, some issues there. You gotta, you gotta marry these things up though, because there was also a big increase in the number of sole traders. And not just sole traders who go, well, you know, sole traders include GPs and barristers and you could, you know, yeah, fair enough. But there are nearly 700,000 quote unquote businesses that have a turnover of less than $50,000 a year. Now, the minimum wage in this country is a little bit over 40000 The stats don't go, they don't give you the detail. They just say less than 50000 but I will bet you all the money in my pockets against all the money in your pockets. Well, of those that's not a great bet. You know I have no money in my pockets. <laughs> I barely well, even have pockets. That's I'm in the how, arts. That's, that's how comfortable I am saying this, that the vast majority of those 700,000 people who are sole, sole trader businesses will be on less than the minimum wage. Now, 
that's a huge number of people who have basically been Uberized into the economy. And you go, well, Ben, you don't know that. You, you can't, you know, how do I know that, right? Like what, what tells me that that's true? You've got to look at where the industries are where these sole traders, these so-called independent contractors are springing up, where, where they're growing the most. And well, where are they growing the most? Tell us, Ben, tell us. <laughs> well, the, you know, they're not – yes, there are some growing going in construction, which you'd expect, builders, plumbers, sparkies, that's sort of your traditional sole trader, right? But healthcare and social assistance and other services and professional scientific and technical services, all of which are categories where people who – work within the NDIS or work in aged care will register themselves as a business, that accounts for nearly 25% of all new businesses registered in the, in the year 2020-21. That is a huge, huge increase in the number of businesses. So, you know, you go, oh, well, you're, you're adding a bunch of things together there. Well, because when you paint a picture, you've got to have all, all the pieces. Uh, you've got to have all the pieces of the puzzle to see the whole picture. And when you look at this, it's a pretty stark set of conditions as to what is driving down wages. Profiteering, too much power for the bosses, uberization of the workforce, Outsourcing, uh, mass casualization, and and sham contracting, the and it, and it's happening in in industries and in sectors where there is growth. You know, we know that the care sector is a growing sector. We know that early childhood is a growing sector, and yet the wages aren't going up. The demand for workers is going up, but the wages aren't going up. Why? Because they're being Uberized like this. It's a pretty stark set of numbers, isn't it? It is, and it's obvious. And I've been writing articles about this in The Guardian for years. Like some of my earliest pieces were about sham contracting going on in things like uh, the agricultural sector, chicken pluckers who were being paid by the chicken and considered by Australian law to be entrepreneurial businesses. I mean, we heard all this nonsense from the Liberals when Morrison was in power that, you know, that the sham contracts were actually, you know, this great expression of the entrepreneurialist spirit. And it is nonsense. It's a structuralised way of exploiting and exploiting people, exploiting labour and suppressing wages. And, of course, this is the, the problem that we're now in. And I want us to just make sure we always pay attention to what is happening at the big end of town. The reason why 1% of Australians are 50% of Australian savings is that the economy has been structured and restructured in their favour over a period of five decades they pay less tax than they ever have. They have more opportunities to subcontract and outsource and offshore and do all of those things. You know, we have an economy that's rigged disproportionately to favour those who already have more than the vast majority of everybody else, literally the 1% versus the 99%. I should say too, Van, that while I was doing the research for this discussion, what came through very clearly in the stats from the Attorney General's office, the stats that were collected under the Morrison era, is that workers on union collective agreements do get paid more money. Of course they, they do. They get, they get better wage outcomes. They have they they have better job security outcomes. It's all there. It's all very clear. And you know, we always say to people, join your union, right? Well. I mean, this is why, because you you do get a better outcome. You get a better wage, you get a better better job, you get a, and that leads to better social outcomes, right? So go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W. Do it right now while you're listening to us for the rest of this episode. Fill in the online form. You don't need to know what union you need to join. You, you just answer the questions and it's a system that will place you into your union we we don't see a dollar of that. That's we 
we just like to know people are in their union. Uh, that and you will As be. Ben in and I are not capitalists. Right we have beliefs and <laughs> values. So you know, it the 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 growth of new businesses under the Morrison era, and and people go, oh, well, you know, we want small business to grow, and of course we do. Like, there's no question about that. But one of the stats that gives some context to the so-called growth in small business is that the hundred of 140,000 sole trader businesses that started last year, almost 120,000 went out of business within 12 months. That's a huge number. And, and it, and it suggests that actually these are not real small businesses, right? They've, they've got less than $50,000 in turnover. They don't employ anybody else. They go out of business within a year. Uh, you know, people are not being covered by by collective agreements. They're falling back on the award. They're being outsourced and Uberized. It's pretty pretty grim, but but knowing the problem gives you an opportunity to fix it, doesn't it? It does. It absolutely does, and that's what we want. Like we want more equity in the economy. We want the majority to have a majority share. We think that's fair. And there are adjustments that can be made by governments and can be made in direct workplaces if we collectively resist our own exploitation. It's a tale as old as time. It really is. It really is uh you know, the, the story of history. And look, you know, <laughs> like, are you, know, you saying that the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggle? <laughs> Maybe I am, Van. Maybe I am. <laughs> and look, the good news on that front is that we have a Labor Party in power federally and in many states around Australia. And the ministers in the federal government in Elbow's cabinet are already starting to make their mark. None uh, none more so than Anthony Albanese himself, as I said, put in a submission to the Fair Work Commission calling for that increase in minimum and award wages to make sure that they keep pace with the cost of living. As already discussed, that will not have a negative impact on inflation, despite what you might see in the Oz or the AFR if you're unfortunate enough to pick up one of those rags. But also, importantly, uh, Labor has confirmed that it will make a submission to the aged care case at the Fair Work Commission. Annika Wells, the new minister for aged care. A former aged care worker herself whose mother was an aged care worker. I mean, this is one of the great things about having a Labor government is people who have actual lived experiences beyond just the corporate sector, right? Yeah. Annika Wells confirmed that they will put in uh, the submission to support an increase for aged care workers. Obviously, obviously needed. There are oh, absolutely. There are some systemic issues though, as as we've just discussed, right? Systemic issues about Uberization, digital sham contracting, outsourcing, and of course, we've seen Bill Shorten take on some of this stuff around the, the uh, call centres in Centrelink, saying they'll be brought back in house. Just today, the, the uh, National Disability Insurance Agency CEO has resigned, uh, which you know is is it being widely hailed as a good outcome. Uh, given the level of unhappiness with uh, the performance of the NDI leadership and the amount they were spending on lawyers trying to stymie people's access, the failure of what of the NDIA to actually build a workforce and the massive amount of digital sham contracting that goes on in that space uh, is just gotten out of control. I think uh, was it Shorten or Alba who called them cowboys. Oh, everyone? Hasn't everyone <laughs> called them cowboys? So, you know, kicking goals in that space. Charities as well uh, is another another area where, you know, the Labor government's already made taking steps. Gary Johns has resigned, the charities commissioner who was totally fixated with trying to smash environmental charities. Um, your friend Andrew Lee 
uh, who's the the uh, minister for charities, said it marked the end of the war on charities. Van, yeah, this is very interesting. What's happening? That um that movement is uh, taking place in that particular sector because there has been a war on charities, like the most like absolute uh, overburdening with regulation. Um, just to make sure nobody's doing anything political uh, to intimidate and cow uh, non-government organisations that receive charitable donations from making any criticisms of the government. You can imagine this is particularly uh, relevant to the environmental sector where there have been rather a lot of criticisms of the government to be made, not to mention also the women's sector and disability advocacy and all of these various restrictions that have been put on organisations supported by charitable donations in terms of their um, their taxation status and all of and essentially implied structural threats to their continuing functioning that have been made. So I think Andrew Lee is a fantastic choice to lead reform in that particular area. Um, I think he's very aware of, uh, of some of the uh, problems that have been a deliberate feature of that system as opposed to a system fault. And of course, Tony Burke, who is both Minister for Arts and Industrial Relations and Employment, has, and employment, has, yeah. has talked about regulating the gig economy, making sure that people are getting minimum standards. Um, and there's going to be a summit in September, which I really hope does deliver, um, you know, the, the reform that we need to, to fix that problem that we talked about before, that that issue of Uberization, these sham contracts, getting people able to collectivize again and negotiate proper wages and conditions rather than being, you know, turned into I think they could call it the atomization of work, you know, where people are just one out against the multinational corporation. We know we can see those results. The results of that are skyrocketing cost of living, huge profits, and cut wages. So he's talked about that. That's apparently going to be a big part of the summit, hopefully in September. But also in in the arts portfolio, a portfolio that Peter Dutton hasn't even bothered to give a shadow to. By the way, there is no shadow minister for the arts in Peter Dutton's um, menagerie. Let's call it. Um, but Tony Burke is already talking up an arts and culture strategy and setting up consultations, Van. Yeah, it is very exciting. I mean, everybody in the arts sector is so thrilled to have an arts minister who supports the arts. And Tony Burke is a very public advocate for our sector and understands that that we are an industry, uh, that we are um, a community of workers, that we were absolutely belted by coronavirus and with no thought about our opportunities by the Morrison government. It's a real statement of status and of recognition to amalgamate arts into under the same suite of ministerial portfolios as employment. Like I think that's a really important recognition and many Australian artists and arts workers have made that acknowledgement on the conversations I've seen online. And certainly like when we're looking at industrial opportunity and what the structure of what the structure of employment looks like. The arts are a really good place to look for how gig economies should uh, and should not be structured because obviously in the arts we are all gigging all the time and there are workers who do better in that system of relations than others. For example, actors whose award conditions include minimum call-outs, minimum hours, um, like very strict occupational health and safety provisions, all kinds of um, minimum pay rates, a highly structured industry. Why is that, Ben? Why of all arts practitioners do actors have such consistently good Conditions because they are unionized, and not only are they unionized, they apply those conditions across the whole industry, the whole sector. So, being being outside of those conditions or trying to offer lower conditions would mean that your production doesn't happen. Like that's a hugely hugely powerful thing. If everybody is unionized and everybody agrees that they won't 
work for less than the agreed wages and conditions, then somebody coming in trying to undercut that doesn't get very far. And it's a huge, huge uh, incentive for employers to do the right thing because you want to get the best people, you want to be part of the sector, and you can't get away with trying to undercut it, which is quite the inverse of what we see in some of the newly gigified industries, if I can put it that way, uh, around disability, aged care, increasingly health and, and in-home care as well. So where there's not a huge amount of unionization and you know everyone's on an ABN, but you know, unlike acting, they're not uh, they're not coming together and standing the, up for each other. The word I want to use here is density because it's not only uh, actors unionized, but they're unionized in extraordinary numbers. Again and again, actors through the um, through Actors Equity, which is a division of the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, which is of course one of the two unions of which I am a member. Um, they ha- like they've got huge rates of membership, and you know it's funny when people go, oh yeah, well you know of course actors can uh, make really high wage demands because uh, and you know demands for good conditions because. They've got, you know, these refined skill sets and the rest of it, you know, their skills are highly in demand. It's like, but that's across the economy. Everybody's skills are in demand. The most important people during coronavirus were people who were running supermarkets. They physically kept us alive. And the the output that, that I just find it so funny because people are like, oh, yeah, well, you know, actors, like you've got to, you've got to employ like a certain person for a certain job. It's like, have you ever been to an open audition? Have you got any idea the level of competition? Anybody who's ever no. tried to use a bathroom in a venue that's holding um, auditions for musical theatre performers, let me tell you, you have never seen such employment competition in your life, like genuinely to the point of feeling slightly scared that you are there. And, and- yet that competition for jobs doesn't drive down wages amongst actors because they have industrial solidarity and they understand that good conditions for one mean good conditions for all. And I think that's a really interesting point because we know, we know that there are shortages. There are staff shortages in aged care. There are staff shortages in the NDIS. There are staff shortages in early childhood education. You know, there are staff shortages in hospitality. But at the same time, we know that, you know, Wage theft is rampant in hospitality. One of the things, by the way, Tony Burke promises to make a criminal act. Thank, thank you very much. Good TC. Um, we know that there is mass exploitation and gigification in NDIS and aged care. We know that uh, early childhood educators are significantly underpaid when compared to teachers in primary schools, for example. So it is. It's not about the supply and demand, that old thinking, that Morrisonomics era thinking of, oh, well, you know, yeah, well, of course, actors, because that's a high demand. Well, actually, it's got nothing to do with it. It's got everything to do with power and how it gets exercised in the economy and who exercises it over whom. And workers' power comes from collectively coming together, being a dense, group of people that cannot be picked off by employers and exercising our power to say, no, no, you must pay this. This is the minimum for this type of work. We will not accept less. If you want this to happen, you must pay us. Yeah. uh, The Australian Council of Trade Unions are doing some really good ads at the moment, one of which I've seen online, and it's a woman on a work site asking that she be remunerated appropriately for the work that she's doing and the boss says no and if you don't like it there's the door and the door opens and all of her union comrades come in and it's great like it's a really hello anyone who made that ad that was a really highly effective ad explaining visually what we talk about on the show week in week out yeah it's fantastic and i want to talk quickly about a couple of other ministers who are already kicking goals uh, uh stephen jones uh, who is the Minister for Superannuation, and, well, sorry, Minister for Financial Services, which includes superannuation, 
um, has instructed the Treasury to look at a pathway to raise superannuation to 15%. We should remember, always remember, people, that our parliamentarians already get 15% super. So whenever somebody says to you, oh, we can't put up super because whatever spurious non-factual reason, first thing is, how much super do they get? Second thing is, our parliamentarians are already getting it. Third thing is, the original intention for superannuation was always to get to 15% because Uh. that's what's required to be able to retire with dignity and comfort. So the good news is Minister Jones has asked Treasury to look at the pathway to get us there and to pay superannuation at the same time as wages. Did you know that we don't do that in this country, Van? Do we not? No, no. And I think a lot of people will be surprised to learn that superannuation is often not paid at the same time as your wages and is often paid quarterly. Now, what that means in practice is that there are a number of employers, not good employers, again, there are lots of good employers who pay super at the same time as wages anyway just because they think it's the right thing to do. But because you're only required to make quarterly payments, some employers effectively use their workers' superannuation as cash flow for their business. That's bad. Well, the the result is somewhere between 4 to $6 billion of superannuation doesn't get paid into people's super accounts every single year. So, yeah, that's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. So the idea behind paying people's super at the same time as they get paid their wages means obviously you'll get your super paid and hopefully that will reduce that. Finally, Van, I want to throw to you for uh, one of one of one of our favourite ministers, of course, Australia's foreign minister, uh, has been kicking goals on the international stage, uh, both in the Pacific but also in Indonesia. Yes, uh, for those of you who haven't seen the photo of the time that Ben turned up to a marriage equality event that Penny Wong and he were both speaking at and they happened to be wearing matching outfits, it is an absolute classic of the genre. Um, Penny Wong is somebody uh, for whom we both have a great amount of admiration and we are not alone given the fact that the uh, multilingual a Chinese Malay Australian foreign minister uh, has been just literally kicking goals on the international stage. So the Chinese government, Comrade Xi's government, he's not my comrade, by the way, I am a great believer in democracy, not authoritarianism, um, has been pursuing quite an aggressive uh, foreign policy mm. strategy in the Pacific. And our former government, led by Scott Morrison, under the foreign policy eye of Marisa Payne and various other people over the years, dropped the ball on the Asia-Pacific yeah, with aid, cutting support, making, you know, denigrating comments about climate change. It's interesting, again and again on the, the, the diplomacy tour that's taken place in the past couple of weeks because the Morrison government seem to have been so arrogant in believing that they would be re-elected that a number of very important foreign policy meetings were set up overseas, like the Quad meeting of America, Australia, Japan and India was set up in Japan and essentially Albanese got elected and had to, you know, have the party watch his face and get on the plane. Um, That These diplomatic meetings are taking place in the wake of quite, like I said, quite energetic a foreign policy outreach by China to Asia-Pacific nations. Well, Penny Wong has been going country to country and, you know, having these diplomatic meetings that have strengthened ties between Australia and Asia-Pacific nations. Very impressively, she and Albanese have been in Indonesia, which is, of course, one of the most heavily populated countries on earth and our neighbour, um, and we've had a bit of bicycle diplomacy, Albanese on a push yes, bike. Um, and Penny Wong gave, who, one of whose um, first languages is Bahasa Malay, 
gave a um, greeting in Bahasa and everybody's been impressed. She was welcomed as the foreign dignitary she is uh, in a community where the RISE uh, Environmental Outreach Charity has been um, investing in uh, flood mitigation and rain collection and the most incredible kinds. And this is the thing, like foreign policy is multidimensional and multidirectional. It's things like proactive environmentalism and environmental efforts and creating and enhancing mm. the reputation of Australia as a helpful friend, which is what you want. And, of course, it's reaping rewards that countries have been resisting overtures by China and the transactional nature of those kind of encounters for more of a, a cohesive vision of an Asia Pacific of countries that are democracies and have more in common than other nations do with authoritarian, anti anti democratic, we in turn ethnic minorities, China. Indeed. Well, talking about uh, awful governments. Uh, I want to turn our attention briefly to New South Wales, where there is. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Russia, but New South Wales it is. Yep. Where there is still, uh, I mean, Russia's government is awful too. Probably I mean, they're particularly awful. To be but- fair, probably to a scale beyond even Dominic Perrottet. But um, you know, the New South Wales government is awful. Is undoubtedly awful. We've seen just this year, in the first half of this year, teachers, nurses, transport workers, and paramedics all take industrial action because of the behaviour, because of the uh, issues with the New South Wales government. I, I should say- we use the term raw industrial thuggery, Ben. I think that's really where we're going here. Yeah, and I think when you look back at the fact that, you know, the New South Wales government locked out uh, rail workers and then tried to play it off as a strike, it is raw industrial thuggery on behalf of the New South Wales government. Today, the New South Wales Public Sector Association workers- marched on the New South Wales Parliament in a peaceful way, in a peaceful way, I want to stress, it was a peaceful protest, but there's up to 130,000 public sector workers in New South Wales who've been offered a pay cut, basically. Um, And right across the state today, workers have walked off the job uh, in Tamworth and Maitland. I've seen footage of workers holding public meetings. Uh, And, of course, we want to express our solidarity with the public sector uh, workers in New South Wales. Um, It's really again, comes back to what we were talking about before, right? this attempt to divide workers. And the Perrottet government is no different. They've, they've attempted to divide workers by offering some healthcare workers, not all, uh, some, uh, a $3,000 payment, uh, and by offering to lift the wages cap, I think, to 2.5%, which is still a cut, right? Like that's still a pay cut when inflation's 5, 5.2, something like that. Um, and credit to the workers of New South Wales who have stood together across sectors. So the Teachers Federation, the Independent Education Union, Unions New South Wales, the Health Services Union and Australian unions have all offered support to these workers. Um, and people can, if you're listening to this right now, you can, you can show your support too. You can go to psa.asn.au. Uh, you can, if you're in New South Wales, you can email your MP. Uh, and and request that they take real action to lift wages, and you can sign the petition wherever you are around the country. But Van, this this New South Wales government, I mean, it is embodying this attempt, isn't it, to to separate workers from their collective? It's trying to turn us against each other, trying to turn teachers against health workers, some health workers against other health workers, transport workers against commuters. Like it's a pretty divisive and uh, and old school industrial thuggery. Oh, absolutely! It's old school industrial thuggery, you know. And it's it, it's it, short term treating. I mean, a lot of what the government in New South Wales has been doing has been, you know, trying to play sectors off one another. And also making sort of one-off payments. I mean, this is more Morrisonian tactics that will give you like this small amount of money, not a systemic change, not a systemic protection. And it's all getting too much. And I just don't understand. I mean, politically, I don't understand the tactic from Perrottet because there are only two liberal states left 
Tasmania, which seems to have like separated from the mainland philosophically as well as everything else, and New South Wales. Like New South Wales is the last citadel remaining in the wreckage of the Liberal Party empire. And Dominic Perrottet looking around the country going, wow, we've literally lost government anywhere, everywhere, and the state governments where Labor have been returned to power have been returned with large majorities what I should do is go to industrial war with working class. Doesn't I mean that doesn't really seem the political tactic du jour. No, and, and even it's not really meeting workers where they're at, which is interesting given the fact that the New South Wales election is coming and Chris Minns is the most popular leader New South Wales has had for the Labor Party in some time. Look, and I think even the attempted um, treating or bribe or whatever you want to call it, the payment, you know, that Morrisonian uh, approach, uh, there was an article in The Guardian only a couple of weeks ago that said 70% of the aged care workforce who were promised this payment by Morrison hadn't received it. Uh, you know, so there's no question that there is a healthy dose of scepticism among people. And it's great to see Unions New South Wales bringing together workers from across different sectors to stand together, to realise that actually at the end of the day, whatever the agency, whatever the statutory authority, whatever it might be, the fundamental employer is the government in so many of the things uh, that we're talking about. And actually we have to stand together, otherwise we get picked off, just like individual workers can be picked off, individual sectors could be picked off. And they are. They're standing together. They're standing side by side, shoulder to shoulder. And you should join your union. If you're listening to this, you know, whatever sector you're in, that solidarity is going to pay off in better wages and conditions. Australianunions.org.au slash wow. That's W-O-W for the week on Wednesday. Then we should have some good news, don't you think? We should. And you found this good news because you love me so much and you know what makes me happy. I know, and you've been very busy in Brisbane on your scooter going up and down and, and you know, doing the I things just, that you I, do. I've got to say I love the public scooters. Those of you who haven't used them, they are, of course, an environmental uh, initiative. They're about reducing traffic congestion in cities, which obviously is good, burns less fossil fuels, um, obviously, you know, stops the frustration of being stuck in traffic, gets people off the road, and they're such a fun way to commute. If you're just going city from one side of the city to the other, like I was doing yesterday, and, and I, I mean, I had a great time with the scooters seeing the sides of Brisbane. I did this in Adelaide as well. You and I tell the wonderful story about the woman in Ballarat who was going down the street on one of them, middle-aged woman going, "Wee!" And it's like, yes, commuting should be fun. So that's a happy environmental story is if you are lucky to have those electric scooters in your city, absolutely make a point of trying them out. Absolutely. But the other good news that we should end on is that Australia has the world's largest plant. Another win for Australia, folks. The world's largest plant is a single seagrass called Poseidon's Ribbon, and it is in Shark Bay, Western Australia. So there you go. There you go, sand gropers. That's another win for you as well. It's the largest plant in the world, and it covers over 180 kilometers. Now, to put that into perspective, it's roughly three times the size of Manhattan. That is massive. They speculate that given Poseidon's ribbon grows at a rate of around 35 centimetres a year, and given the size of this particular plant, it could be as old as 4,500 years, 4,500 years old. And seagrass is, of course, highly effective in processing carbon. So it is in all of our interests to protect Poseidon's ribbon with our lives because our lives literally depend on it. I just think it's an amazing good news story. It's a fantastic – it's a ribbon in the cap of Australia, that one. I love it. (laughs) And, Van, as I mentioned before, the week on Wednesday has grown and grown and grown. We've had month-on-month growth in downloads every single month. And, of course, we nearly hit 50,000 downloads in May, and that's in no small part thanks to people who 
listen, download, like, share, talk about, have listening parties. I've heard of people doing that. Talk about the issues in the podcast, but also people who do make a financial contribution, which helps us to advertise and grow the audience even more. Oh, it's fantastic. Your contributions have enabled us to reach so many people. And, you know, the larger the community, the more we're having these discussions, the more that flows into a broader, you know, literacy around local politics and local economic policy. And, and it builds a movement of awareness that m- empowers people to feel more confident in having policy discussions themselves. So if you want to become a supporter or you want to check out the supporter content, you know, we do put a few extra links in there and we do, if you're a Cadre supporter, we do do a video uh, just for Cadre supporters once a month. Uh, you can go to buy, buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. Uh, if you go there, the links are on our social media as well, of course. You can become a supporter. But we also give a shout out to all of our cadre who contribute $20 a month and our Extend the Reach supporters who contribute $10 a month. And Van, have you got the cadre list there in front of you? I do have the cadre list in front of me. Are you ready, everybody? Our cadre list are at Jane C. Campbell, Leona Gibbons, Someone, Bronwyn, Punch Drunk Veteran, Jenny Foster Seven, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, No Twitter for Me, Hannah Honda, Sam Harriet, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, No Relation, Richard Sands, I'm Not on Twitter, Glenn Robbie, Brush Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Lee Archer, Linda Cartwright, at Leanne Jingles, Louise Moran, Donna Chapman, I Don't Have Twitter, My Name is Susan Myers, Kerry Nash 20, Billy Three McCabe, Karen Will Robinson, Narissa Simon, Katagal, Lauren and Ash, Matthew Hadley, at Naranga Man, John Sharp and Peter Barth, Andrew Aaron, Sorry, Rollins, Louise Watson at Red, White and Blue Lou, and we have our Extend the Reach supporters as well. Stuart Munn, Adrian Valente, Maritza at Kerrydale 68, Frank Knight, Erica Pizzuti, Claire, John, Joe Lapino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, Pauline Bate, at K Knott, at Didhams, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Graver, Someone, Vita W, Tanya George, Nadita Hannam, Bill Collis, Moira Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Belinda Bravo, Sandy Honan, at Galvest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Eliana and Andrew, Ivis Spillett, Andrew Bride, Tamara James, Peter OC, Linda, Sam Hadid, Kip Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, at The Real Never Longbody, Sandy Baumgart, at Not Sandy B, Melody Patterson and Renee McGee. Thank you so much to everybody who makes a contribution. It really has made a huge difference, huge difference. We reach more people now than ever before, and we're able to produce more content than ever before. We want to thank everybody who listens, shares, likes. Don't forget to leave a comment or a review on Apple Podcasts if you're listening on Apple, uh, and you can check out all of our social media channels. You can also, of course, catch Van in The Guardian I think it is now. Uh, usually on Tuesdays, yes. Yeah. Um, I am also on Twitter, not Twitter. I am now also on TikTok. And so you're also ben, on Twitter. <laughs> I am on Twitter. I'm on Twitter way too much. I am on Twitter. Ben is, oh, God, I'm, <laughs> I'm getting social media madness. I am on Twitter, on TikTok, at Van Batum. Um, ben is on uh, TikTok, at Ben Davison. Um, we are learning the medium and we're obviously very grateful for help and assistance from all of our friends and comrades who are helping us out and gradually we're going to be building uh, more properties in that space that talk about the issues that we discuss on the show absolutely well you can catch us again next week don't forget to tune in to the weekend wrap on Sunday afternoon uh, where well, I'll do a short weekend wrap because it is a long weekend. So, you know, I don't want to work too hard for the long weekend. Um, but until then, Van, love you very much. I love you too. I miss you terribly. I'm going to be home soon. That's exciting. Yay. That'd be great. Looking right, forward to I love it. you. Look after the dog. Bye. Bye.